Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and, and we're fully aware, Lord, that this time, this time of, of preaching, this time of digging into your word is worship. As we enjoy who you are and what you're doing in the world, and our hearts are stirred to love you and to want to be a part of it, that is worship. And so we pray, Lord, that your spirit would once again come and fill this place as you've always been faithful to send him. We pray that you would send him to, to stir us up for love for you, for your son, for your spirit. Lord, we pray that we would leave this place um, prepared for love and good deeds as we um, heard about our going on in Cambodia. Lord, we pray that in our own midst that we would be filled with love and good deeds for our neighbors. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in this series called Finally Free, and it's a series through Galatians. And this letter, I just want to remind you guys, um, Paul wrote to a uh, group of churches in Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, but this was in 48 AD that he wrote this. And so it's just worthwhile just thinking back for a second. This is a 1970-year-old letter we have. It's amazing, right? And you guys realize the oldest manuscript we have, it. it's on a papyrus-type paper, and it probably dates about 200 A.D. So we have an eight, we don't personally have this, but it's in a museum somewhere, an 1,800-year-old piece of paper with this written in Greek. Isn't that tremendous? It's just amazing we even have it, you know? We have this gift of this letter. In the first half of this letter, Paul is largely dealing with how can we as sinners be made in a right relationship with God who is good and holy and generous, and yet we're sinners, we've sinned against him. How can we be made right with him? And Paul's answer is, it's a gift. We receive right standing with God as a gift. And we saw that not only did he redeem us from our sins, but he adopts us as his children. And so that's in the beginning there, in the, in, throughout chapter 4 and chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now Paul turns to the, this subject. He says, if we're God's adopted kids, how do we begin to live as if we're his kids, right? If God is our father and, and, and God the son, Jesus, is our brother spiritually, how do we now learn to walk and live in a way that fits our family character so that people would know that we are sons and daughters of God. And his answer is given in this section he, when he talks about walking in the Spirit. That process, guys, is called sanctification. And I think it's, a, I'm going to say sanctification a million times, so like pay attention right now. Sanctification is this. It is a process of our character being changed so that we're more like Christ. So sanctification is a lifelong process. Um, sanctification means to be set apart. So more and more our 
internal uh, motivations and desires and loves are being changed to be more like Christ, so their life is more like Christ. It's called sanctification. And what I want to do this morning is just kind of run through this, this passage and just point out little areas, okay? I'm not going to go like section by section, but it's almost like we're in a plane. Imagine we're in a plane and we're flying over California, and I, I go, oh, hey, look, there's, uh, there's, there's um, Mammoth, and oh, look over here, there's uh, you know, Lake Tahoe, and oh, look over here, that's Shasta, right? So we're looking out the window. And so to do this, guys, you're going to need a window to look out of. Do you guys all have a Bible? Does anyone need a Bible? You can share. <laughs> Did anybody else need a Bible? Bibles? Or you can pull it up on your phone. I've got one right here. I'll totally throw it at you. No? Okay, that only freaks you out. But so what I'm going to do is I'm going to point out little parts. And what, the big question we're going to look at is, what is sanctification like? What is this process of becoming more like Christ? What is it like? And I'm going to frame it in the negative. I'm going to go with six things sanctification isn't. And the reason why I'm going to go with six things sanctification is not is because there's a lot of unhelpful ways that Christians today and throughout the centuries have tried to pursue change, have tried to pursue being like Christ. And so there's these six things that we can think sanctification is that are totally unhelpful. And this passage is like a, it's a great go-to on sanctification. It was amazing as I was looking through it. It's like almost a Swiss army knife of, of answers about sanctification. You know, you get the magnifying glass and the tweezers and you got all kinds of things in here. It's amazing. So it's probably even more than I have here. But first, sanctification is not powerless. Sanctification is not powerless. A lot of Christians I talk to, they're very hopeless about change. And you can see why this is, guys. I mean, any of us who have dealt with a particular sin that we got enslaved to and it's beat us down, we can begin to think that there's no way we're going to change in that area. I think we all have areas in our lives where we doubt that God will change us in that area. We doubt that he'll free us from that particular sin because we've been so beat down by it. You know, when Moses went to the um, Israelites, when they were in Egypt, and they'd been beat down for hundreds of years, right? And he came to him, he said, God sent me to get you out of here. You know, they didn't believe him. It says in Exodus 6, 9, it says they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery, that they had so long been enslaved by it that they didn't believe they could be free. I think there's probably people in this room here that feel that way about particular sins in their lives. It's not true. God has given us freedom in these areas. And sometimes people will turn to Romans 7, and they'll use Romans 7 as a way to say, look, this is just the way it is to live the Christian life. You know, Romans 7 says things like, I do not do the things I want, but the very thing I hate. He says, I have the desire to do what's right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. And then the end of Romans 7 ends with, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve sin. If you only took Romans 7 all by itself, it sounds completely hopeless, doesn't it? Sounds hijacked, right? He's hopeless and he's hijacked. There's almost this sense at the end of Romans 7, it's like, well, I'm a slave to sin, but at least I'm forgiven. That isn't the whole good news, though, guys. whole good news is not just that you're forgiven, but you're also set free. And when we read Romans 7 like that, we're forgetting that there's a Romans 6 and a Romans 8. It's crazy, I know, that there would be a 7 and a 6 and an 8. But there is. And in Romans 6, he promises that we have freedom from slavery to sin. Not that we'll be sinless, but we can have freedom from any particular sin. That God has removed not just the penalty of our sin, but the power of our sin. And we can, over time, learn to walk in that. He's not only given us forgiveness from sin, but freedom from sin that we can learn to walk in over time. And then Romans 8 talks about how we get that freedom, and it's a process by the gospel and the Spirit. And so if you have time this afternoon, it would be a great thing for you to read through. Um, So the gospel promises us, guys, that we can live forgiven and free. 
Take a look at our passage in, in verse 16. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and then what's the second half? And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You see that? You will not. There's a promise there, right? That if we walk in the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That word gratify is really interesting because it has this sense of demands. That the flesh is making demands on us. The flesh demands we be angry. The flesh demands we partake in some sort of you know, sexual sin. The flesh demands that we be envious. Do you feel the demands of the flesh? You feel the flesh saying, like, don't let her get away with that. Or, you know, see what they have? The flesh is demanding that you gratify it. And he says here that if we walk in the Spirit, we will not gratify the demands of the flesh. So, firstly, sanctification is not powerless. We're not powerless. Why aren't we powerless? We're not powerless because this text says that we have a very powerful person living inside of us, a holy person. It's God, the Holy Spirit, who lives within us, and he is going to transform us. And um, I think it's really important for all of us to think about that. Your body, your carcass right there is inhabited, is a temple, is a dwelling place for God in a very unique way, in a way that he's, he's, he's present everywhere, but he's uniquely present in you in the way he was present in the um, in the Old Covenant, in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, that he dwells in you and he has a role to play in your life to set you free. And there's some bad teaching in this area. And one of the teachings you can hear is that not all people, not all Christians have the Holy Spirit. Not all Christians have the Holy Spirit. Not all Christians have the Holy Spirit in the same way. So you can hear people talk about like, hey, have you prayed to receive the Spirit? And you're like, well, I'm a Christian. Yeah, but have you, have you received the Spirit yet? Every Christian has the Holy Spirit within them. Uh, Romans... Um, 8, 9 says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to Christ. Okay, so that's pretty straightforward. If you're a Christian, if you trust in Jesus, God the Spirit lives within you. You might not feel like it. You may not be seeing the results you'd expect and all those things, but it's true. And we can learn to walk more and more. Because, guys, there's not two types of Christians. You know, the spirit ones and the non-spirit ones. There's not any second-class Christians. There's no lesser sons and daughters. In Galatians 4, 6 says, Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We all have that same access. Now, whether we're living into that, that's another story. But every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the cool thing is, is he's not going to let sin reign. You know, he's not comfortable with just dwelling within you and letting sin do whatever it wants, right? Take a look at verse 17. It says, The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. There's a war within us, right? And that's why when there's changes in our lives, he says in verse 22 that they're the fruit of the spirit. I think that's really interesting. It isn't the fruit of the Christian. You know those love, joy, peace, patience? Not the fruit of the Christian. It's not your fruit. It's God himself living within you, producing fruit. It's his fruit. So sanctification isn't powerless because you're inhabited by the Spirit. Secondly, sanctification is not passive. You might think that because you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you that you could just like kind of kick back and he'll do all the work. It seems like kind of logical that it would work that way, right? Comes to live in us, takes care of everything without us having to take part in it. Um, that's been a common teaching in the past, kind of a uh, let go and let God, you know, I'll just kick back and God's going to change me. I need to cease from all my effort and trying and um, cease from any doing and just believe, sit back and watch the transformation. Has anybody tried that? Were you amazed by the transformation that did not happen? Yeah, right. Look at, look at uh, verse 16 again. It says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's a command. So we're commanded to walk by the Spirit. There's something we need to do. 
We don't earn it. We don't make it happen. But there's something we need to do. That, that Greek literally is, be always walking in the Spirit. And I know it sounds strange, but the way God transforms us is that we live in such a way that we see the Spirit doing the work in us. But there is a way that we need to engage with Him in this. And that's what discipleship really is. Discipleship is learning to do everything Christ has commanded by the power of the Spirit. There's a way to learn to do everything Christ has commanded by the power of the Spirit uh, through a transformed heart. And practically, that looks like the spiritual disciplines. God's given us specific um, means of grace, spiritual disciplines, things we can do where we invite the Spirit to more and more reign within us. Right? There's practices. Jesus did these. Jesus, God in the flesh, actually lived as a Spirit-empowered man. He lived by the power of the Spirit throughout his time here. And what kind of practices did Jesus have? Spiritual practices. This is open to your... What kind of things did he do? Prayer would be one. Prayer, fasting would be one. Yep. What? Solitude, which is a fun one, because in our culture, no one brings up solitude, but solitude was one of them. You know, Jesus was always like, it says he was always kind of escaping from them. You know, he was looking for a desolate place. He was ditching them all the time. He's going to go be away with the Lord. What else? Obedience, so applying God's word, right? So there's a, a meditating on, a studying, a memorizing, and then applying God's word, um, following God's word. What else? Fasting. Simplicity. A lot of Americans don't think of that one. Simplicity, practice simplicity or frugality. Uh, service. You think about him constantly healing and teaching. He was a, constantly engaged in service. Um, fellowship. Didn't generally go places alone. He had his disciples with him. He actually, he, God in the flesh, living as a spirit-powered man, benefited from having his friends with him and fellowship with him, which is kind of wild. It makes you think, like, maybe I need people too. Maybe, right? Um, gathered worship. It says that he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, that every week he went for gathered worship, which is bizarre because here's God in the flesh listening to some guy teach from the Torah, you know, that... He's probably thinking like, oh, not exactly, buddy, you know, like, but he benefited from corporate worship. There's a humility in that, that God himself would come and he benefited from being in corporate worship. I was talking to a friend this week about his battle with sin and, and I, I directed him this text because that's what I was thinking about. And I was saying, you know, well, you know, what we really need to do is walk in the spirit. And he said, you know what? I don't know how to do that. And so I gave a very pastoral answer, which was like, oh, stop it. You do too is what I told him. And he does, because we were talking through his day. I know this guy really well. And How does he walk in the Spirit? I know exactly how he walks in the Spirit. He, he wakes up in the morning, and he confesses his sin. He confesses any sinful attitudes. He confesses his fears for that day. He, he thanks God for another day of life. He, he grabs a hold of some passage of Scripture. Maybe he has time to read. Maybe he has just time to grab a phrase or a little piece of Scripture. Takes that with him. Prays for the power to go through the day. Prays that the Spirit would work through him gets in his car, drives to work, listens to some scripture or music or podcast or something that kind of helps get his mind right, you know, pulls up to his work, prays like, God, please, you know, especially on Monday, please work through me today, you know, like, give me the power to do this, I'm dying here, right? And then he goes in and he, 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 he works, and I know at lunchtime, he does the whole thing again. <laughs> he confesses any sinful attitudes and confesses his fears and thanks God for the way he saw him work through him in that time, and crabs hold of some little piece of scripture to just chew on, and then prays for the power to finish out the day. 
And then on the way home from work, he does the same thing again. He confesses any sinful attitudes. He you know, thanks God for the ways that he worked through him that day. Thanks for any blessings and provision that God made that day. Any graces in his work and, 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 and savors some scripture and then prays for power. You know, you're going home. This is an important one on the way home. So one of the most important checkpoints is to, to go, okay, I'm going home and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love and serve my family. I'm not expecting to get there and be served, right? And to shut down and just relax. This is stage two of my work, you know, now I'm going to serve again, and, and just praying, you know, you pull up to the driveway, and you, you're right in front of the garage door, and you're thinking like, okay, Lord, like, this is another time for me to serve, please move through me, you know, have your spirit change my attitude, give me the strength to do this, and then as he's falling asleep, you know, we call him the Psalms, the night watches, he's falling, drifting asleep, you know, confessing any known sin, thanking God for the grace throughout that day, praying for power for the next day, savoring some bit of the word of God, and then falling asleep. That's what it's like to walk by the Spirit. It's not some crazy, you know, miraculous thing. It is supernatural, but it looks very ordinary, doesn't it? Other things, you know, that I know um, he and others have added in, you add in a, maybe a day of fasting. So maybe one day you, you skip breakfast, you skip breakfast and lunch, and that kind of helps you throughout the day to, like, be reminded because the trick is, on the way to work, you're good, and at lunch, you're good. In between, not so good. And so sometimes fasting will help you to remember to connect throughout those moments and kind of build a, a, a way of connecting with him. And, and then walking by the Spirit would include setting aside the Lord's Day, Sunday, for worship and for fellowship, and then you do it again and again. It, it, because a lot of times when we look at this walk by the Spirit, we think it's got to give us like some sort of spiritual goosebumps or something like that. Um, I don't know about you, but that would be very infrequent. He says, always be walking in the Spirit. It's going to look very ordinary. It's going to, I mean, think about the things God's given us to empower us. I mean, think about communion. It looks very ordinary, right? It's just some bread. It's a cup. We, 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 just, we don't see anything special there, and yet God feeds us through that. God feeds us as we dwell in him through spiritual disciplines. Paul says in chapter 2, he says, It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And we can actually learn more and more to have the Spirit having his way in our lives instead of the flesh. So sanctification is not passive. It's walking by the Spirit. Thirdly, sanctification is not peaceful. Sanctification is not peaceful. And we see that in this text. God has given us peace uh, with himself. Jesus has come to give us peace with God. Jesus has come to give us peace with the future. But he has not given us peace with our sin. <laughs> when he came into our lives, he created a war within us. Look at verse 17 again. For the desire of the flesh is against the Spirit, and the desire of the Spirit is against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what you want to do. Other translations actually say the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh wars against the spirit. And I think it's really important to bring up that sanctification is not peaceful because our culture highly values ease and relaxation. Okay, highly values ease and relaxation. So we tend to feel like if something's painful or difficult, we're doing it wrong. Like, oh, we must be doing it wrong because it hurts or it's hard. It's like, no, it's, this is a war. We can, we can think about our sanctification that it should be comfortable and peaceful, but this text says the opposite. It says that sanctification is going to be a lot more like a war than a meditation retreat. You know, that time you have at Starbucks, where you open your Bible and you Instagram a picture of that and your coffee and, you know, your, your fancy notebook that you just got, and after a while you'll get a new one because, you know, it's time to be spiritual again. Those times are nice. But sanctification, guys, is a war. It's a war between the flesh and the spirit. That word, the flesh there, it's important to know what that is. Um, the Greek word sarx, and it's not your body. 
A lot of harm has been done, especially in medieval period, with people thinking that we're warring with our bodies, our physical bodies. Um, verse 24 talks about crucifying the flesh. And you can think about medieval ways of thinking about that, where people were very harsh with their physical bodies, thinking that somehow that was spiritual. That's not what he's talking about here. When he talks about flesh, he's talking about a spiritual source of those evil urges you have. And I know most of you don't have evil urges, but those of you who do. Like when you came here in the minivan today and you felt like potentially killing your kids, that was the flesh, okay? So you do have it, okay? You do have it. You have the flesh. The flesh is that spiritual source of remaining sinful urges and desires you have in you. And what's really cool about it is not just in this passage, but in Romans 7, it makes clear that that's not the real you. Isn't that cool? That's not the real you. What it is, it's a, it's a spiritual parasite within you that won't get removed until the resurrection. And that wars with the Holy Spirit, this flesh. They don't peacefully coexist, right? They war with each other. Guys, if you're a Christian, there's a war within you. Do you feel like there's a war within you? There is a war within you if you're a Christian. You have two violently opposing forces in you. You have the Holy Spirit and you have the flesh, and they're complete enemies, and it can kind of make you feel um, like you're two persons, like the spiritual like schizophrenia, right? Where you feel like you, you have this one side and this other side, and you're constantly battling it. It can make us look crazy, can it? Um, uh, about a month ago, I went to an appointment. I'm a horse vet, and I went there, and I was supposed to sedate this horse for a horseshoer, and he was going to dig out this growth on the hoof. And we made the appointment for five. I don't want to do a call at five. It's too late. I should be home by then. But that was the only time he could do it. So I'm on my way there. And I get a page like, dude's going to be an hour late. Okay, so it's going to be 6 o'clock. I'm like, okay. <laughs> that'll be fine. You know, that'll be fine. And so then I pull up, and the guy's like, oh, yeah, I just got a call from him. It's going to be another hour. It's going to be like 7 o'clock, right? So I'm like, this is going to be good. Ah, we're going to be fine here. We're just going to get through this. We're just going to do it. I'm going to try not to look irritated, though I am. Then the dude pulls up, and it was the weirdest thing. He was like in charge, which... A little authority issue, maybe, but he just starts like rattling all the stuff he wants me to do and how long this is going to take and stuff like that. And I just had had it with him. I'm just like, nope, you know, I'm the boss here. Here's what we are doing. Here's what we're not doing. I was pretty irritated. I was pretty angry, right? Sinfully angry, okay? And I felt pretty justified in it and drove home and I saw uh, Vanessa and Darnell and I was telling them about it. And I kind of was, I think when I was talking to you guys about it, I was trying to feel good about what I did. You know, I'm like, hey, this dude did this. And I'm looking for you guys to go like, yeah, totally, man. That guy deserved that, you know. That's what I'm looking for, you know. She didn't give it to me, though. I went away from that conversation feeling like, okay, Vanessa's like. <laughs> so then the next day, I'm like feeling, you know, obviously convicted about it as the spirit's working, right? And um, I called the client, and I said, hey, you know, I want to apologize for that. He's all, no, no, we should apologize to you. And I'm like, no, 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 I should apologize to you. And then I'm like, give me the horseshoer's number. So I call this guy, and he was so weirded out by my call. Because I think he thought I was going to go into stage two of tearing into him. And I'm like, dude, I got to apologize. That was not humble of me. You know, that was totally sin. And the dude's like, uh, okay. It was like the most awkward apology. And he's like, it's fine, it's fine. And I'm like, no, I need to know that you forgive me for this sin. And the guy's like, so I look crazy is the bottom line. Because <laughs> like, there's a war within, right? And so we're going to look crazy in front of people, right? It's crazy. If you're at peace, guys, there's only one ex two explanations if you're at peace. You're either dead spiritually or you're dead physically. 
right? Those are the only two options. You're either dead spiritually or dead physically because if you're an alive, true Christian, you have a war within you. Isn't that encouraging to know? It's just super encouraging to know, okay, that's normal, you know? That's normal. And he says in this text, he's got warnings about this. Look at verse 21. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, that whole list of the flesh, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you might think like, oh, so if we sin at all, we don't inherit the kingdom of God? No, that word do is practice. And actually, the NSB translates it that way. Those who practice such things. Or the NLT says, those who live that sort of life. If you don't have a war within you against sin, there's no life there. There's no life, there's no war. And if there's no war, there's no life. In verse 24, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. I mean, that sounds... That doesn't sound peaceful, right? It's not your physical body, it's your spiritual body. You're crucifying that thing, right? Like, that's painful. Guys, even a dead fish can, can just glide along with the current, right? Dead fish can go downstream and they can glide along with the current. Uh, and that's what you used to do. Before you were a Christian, you were like the dead fish and you just drifted with the current of your flesh. Pretty peaceful, actually, you know, because the flesh wants to go this way and you want to go this way, right? But what happened when the Holy Spirit brought you to life is you became like that live salmon. You woke up, you treasured Christ, and you went, wait a minute, I'm not going to go downstream anymore. And you turned around and you went the opposite way. And you started pushing against the current. That's what the Holy Spirit drives us to do. Christians, you know why your life's so hard? There's a lot of reasons your life's hard, probably. But one of them is, is you're alive and you're swimming against the current. That's why it's hard. You're swimming against the current of your culture. You're swimming against the current of, of evil forces that want to stop you. You're swimming, most exhaustingly, you're swimming against the current of your own flesh. You're alive. Sanctification, guys, is not peaceful. It's a war within. Have you guys ever seen what those salmon look like at the top of the river? When they get to the very top, what do they look like? What do they look like, Steve? They are rough looking, you know, you're like, hey, I caught some fish. And they're like, is it a fish? You know, I mean, it's just like beat up. That is the way that we will enter the new world is beat up like that. And the resurrection will make us all new. But it's rough. It's a war. It's, that's normal. Next, sanctification is not a payment. I think this is really important. If you're going to go to war, you need to know why you're at war, right? Sanctification is not a war for your salvation. Sanctification is not a war for you to win heaven for yourself. Take a look at verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Notice the order. Those who belong to Christ Jesus do this, right? As we fight sin, we're not fighting to become a, a, a son or daughter of Christ, we're fighting as sons and daughters. We're not fighting as slaves to somehow earn something from God. We're fighting as those who have been redeemed. Sanctification is not a payment for salvation. Sanctification is not even a repayment for salvation, okay? I think a lot of times we can think like, yeah, you did all that, and I'm going to make this up to you, God. Like, I'm going to fly right. I'm going to repay, right? Um, I had a friend who uh, needed an organ, Okay, she needed this organ, and uh, they went through a matching process and stuff like that, and it was hard to find one. Her brother gave it to her, okay? So her brother gives it to her. Can you imagine? Can you imagine somebody doing that for you? Imagine somebody giving you one of their organs? Can you imagine then going like, hey, I really appreciate what you did. I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you 20 bucks a month for this. What would that do? 
It cheapens a gift, right? It's insulting when somebody gives you a gift to repay. <laughs> oh, I'm going to make payments. No, you're not. And by the way, it'd be a lot more than that if I was going to charge you for it, right? Guys, to the degree that you think of your sanctification, of your change as a payment to God or a repayment, you actually like lose power. Because you've, you've gone to being under the law, you've gone to being a slave, not a son or a daughter, and now you're actually trying to earn it, you actually lose power. It has to be for a different motive. So what's the motive? Why do we war with sin so much? If we're not trying to save ourselves, why do we war with sin? Really interesting. Take a look at verse 17. He says you end up not being able to do the thing that what? You want to do. Isn't that interesting? You want to do it. Like, why do we go to war with our sin? Because we want to. Turns out that when God gives us a new life, he gives us a new heart, we want to. We want to swim against the current. Why do we want to swim against the current? Why do we want to fight sin in our lives? The ultimate reason, guys, is love. You know, I mean, that's why warriors go to battle, right? They don't go to battle mainly because of what they hate. They go to battle because of what they love. You know, a warrior goes to battle because they love their country. They love their fellow troops. They love their family. They love, their, they love justice. They love freedom. They go to war because of what they love. Guys, we go to war with our sin because of what we love. We love God now, and we want to go to war with our sin. Sanctification is a payment. It's a response of love. Isn't that awesome? And this response of love, remember when we were in chapter 4, the reason why we love God is because of the spirit within us. Remember from chapter 4? Um, this is, I'll review this because it's so cool. So what happened in chapter 4 was is that God sent forth his son to redeem us, right? God sent forth his son to redeem us. So he sends his son to die for us on the cross. We trust in him. And then guess what? Now God the Father has adopted us and he feels exactly the same care and affection for you that he feels for Jesus. That's what it means to be adopted by God. Is that God the Father has the same care and affection for you he has for Jesus. And that doesn't change, no matter how big of a nut you are, right? It doesn't change. And then he does something even more. It says, then, because you're sons and daughters, he sends forth the spirit of his son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. What's going on there? Not only does God the Father have the same affections and care for you that he has for Jesus, but the Spirit has come into your heart so you can have the same affection for the Father that Jesus has for the Father. It's, it's his Spirit causing your heart to love the Father the way he loves the Father. Isn't that awesome? And that's where that love comes from. That's why you fight. You fight for love. You fight for love. Our desire to crucify our sinful desires, love and action. It's not a payment, it's love. Fifth, sanctification is not private. This is a fun one too. So historically, and maybe you've thought this way. See if you thought, thought this way. Have you ever thought this way? You know, it's really hard to be like Christ when I've got all these sinners around me. <laughs> tempting me and making it really hard for me to be like Jesus, right? If only I could get away from all these people, away with God, I could really start to live this. I could basically be just like Jesus if I could get away. You ever feel that way? It's all those people you put around me, Lord, that are doing this, right? And there have been two main ways that Christians have gone after them. In the first few centuries of the church, there were the hermits, which I think would be so fun to study as the hermits. So these were the desert fathers and mothers that went out in the desert somewhere and lived by themselves. They thought, you know, if I'm going to really be like Jesus, I've got to get away from all these sinners I'm going to go off in the desert. Well, it turned out like the hermits would fight each other and stuff like that. So there was kind of some weird stuff going on on the desert. It was a nice idea. But they moved away from the church and the world, right? 
Got to get away from the church and the world. Got to get away from sinners. A little bit later, a little bit healthier movement came. You had monks, right? So what do monks do? They, don't, they get away from the world, but they stay with the church. So you get with a group of people that are real serious about God, you live together, stay away from the world, and that's how you can be transformed. Which one's biblical? Neither, right? Jesus said he wants us to be one in John 17, right? He wants us to be one, so we can't be a hermit, right? As much as you'd like to be. You can't be a hermit. And the other thing you can't be is you can't be a monk because he says, I want him in the world but not of the world. And so our mission can't be lived as hermits or monks. Our sanctification is not private. It's personal, but it's not private. It's meant to bless others. Our sanctification is for the benefit of other people. Look at the context. Look at verse 14. He says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you may not be consumed by one another. And then look at what 16, our passage starts with. But, I say, walk by the Spirit. So walking by the Spirit's being given as the opposite of biting and devouring each other, okay? So our sanctification is actually for the benefit of other people. And we can see that in the list, too. The fruit of the flesh, and then you got the fruit of the Spirit, you know, the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to dig into those in a couple weeks, because every one of those words is like, really got a particular taste, and they're very helpful in different ways. So like all the deeds of the flesh, they have like a nice bitter taste, right? And we can go through each one and see what each one is, kind of see what that is. And then we'll look through the fruit of the Spirit. And each one's got this nice sweet taste to it. So we're gonna, we, want, we need more time for that, right, to really chew on those words, okay? But notice in those words that all, almost all those words are things that would benefit your neighbor or curse your neighbor. So my sanctification, your sanctification is for the benefit of your neighbor. Isn't that interesting? It's for the benefit of your neighbor, um, in other religions, God receives our works as a payment for blessing. So we give him our works, and he gives us blessing. But in the gospel, we receive God's blessing, which he himself paid for with his works. So you're like, okay, well, then where is the place of works? Well, once you trust in Christ, you want to do the, the things he's commanded. You want to do good deeds. God doesn't need them, though. Luther said, and I love this, God doesn't need your good deeds, but your neighbor does right? But your neighbor does, right? And so our, God gets um, our faith and our trust we give to God, and we give our good deeds to our neighbors. As any sanctification that doesn't make life better for the people around you isn't. It isn't sanctification. Any sanctification that doesn't make life better for the people around you is not sanctification. Have you guys ever known somebody that was like super spiritual or super sanctified and was like really painful to live with? Are really painful to be around. It, that's not sanctification. Any sanctification that doesn't make life better for the people around you isn't sanctification because sanctification is not private. It's for the benefit of your neighbor. And then lastly, we'll get there. Sanctification is not perfection. This is a fun one too, historically. Because historically in the church, there have been times when people have taught that Christians can become perfect at some point. She's kind of crazy. I mean, it's like the last heresy I would believe in, you know? But um, mainly because of you guys, not me. But, uh, no, just kidding. But they taught that there was a way for Christians to become perfect at some point called Christian perfectionism or entire sanctification. John Wesley famously toyed with this idea. Um, he didn't believe he had done it, and uh, believe me, neither did his wife. They didn't have a really good relationship, but... Um, but there was this teaching that you could become perfect in this life or at least have no known sin in your life or something like that. There were different levels of that. And a lot of times these people didn't teach that they did. They knew a guy, you know. But um, 
there's this really funny story of uh, Charles Spurgeon. He lived in the 1800s as a preacher, and he went to this conference, and there was a guy there that was teaching Christian perfectionism and said that he had reached it. And so, you know, one option is to bust out some scripture on him, but Spurgeon did this other thing. The next morning, he goes up behind him at breakfast, and he pours a whole uh, uh, jug of milk over the guy's head and quickly found the sin that this guy had lost many years ago. It was quickly discovered. The guy, like, lit up on him, and he's like, nope, guess it doesn't work, you know? (laughs) Guys, sanctification, it isn't perfection. We can see that in verse 17. He says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit against the flesh. And then listen to this. These are opposed to each other. And then what's the last part? To keep you from doing the things you want to do. How many of you guys feel like that? You're being kept from doing the things you want to do, right? Sanctification is a process. It doesn't get completed in this life. It, happens, it gets completed at the resurrection. But remember, verse 21 says there's going to be substantial change. God's freeing us over time from slavery to sin, but not perfection in this life. It's a process. In fact, you know, a lot of Christians probably will feel like they're getting worse, not better. You just feel like that way? Everything like, I've been a Christian for 10 years. I'm pretty sure I'm getting worse, you know, not better. Um, there's this, uh, Jerry Bridges, he had this really cool analogy for that. He talked about it as like a dimmer switch. And so the Holy Spirit does two things in our lives. He, more than two, but I'll just give you two. He's, he's sanctifying us. He's making us more holy from the inside out, right? But he's also making us more aware of our sin. And so Jerry Bridges said it's like this, like, it's like your heart and life are a room. And before you came to Christ, just filthy, right? Filthy in the heart, filthy in the life. And, and God, instead of just switching on a light, it was a dimmer switch, right? He turns it up a little bit, enough for you to see your sin and go like, I need Jesus. This is not okay. And trust in Jesus, have your sin removed. And then as he's sanctifying you, as he's making, cleaning up this room, right? He's making this room cleaner over time. He's also turning the light up. So you're seeing more and more of it. So he says the effect is often that though your life is changing, you're becoming more sensitive to the sin that's in your own heart. You're becoming more aware of the sins that, that are in you. So you feel like you're getting worse. Does that make sense? I just think that's totally true. And so you might be getting worse. Or what might be happening is that God is showing your sin more and more. And that's what he does. And, and let me just grab a whiteboard because i got a diagram for you. You guys love this whiteboard. It's the school's whiteboard. It's really nice. I was a little worried it wouldn't be here. Um, that whole thing of like becoming more and more aware of your own sinfulness over time is actually part of the way that the Holy Spirit transforms us. And I want to just do this diagram for you. When you first came to trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit revealed to you the depth of your sin. Right? The depth of your sin. It's really the sense of the depth of your sin, right? Your sin was so deep that you needed Christ to save you, that there was no way to save yourself. Realize the depth of your sin. The, only, the other thing that the Holy Spirit did when, when you came to Christ is he revealed to you the greatness of God's love, right? So your sense of the greatness, this makes great audio, of God's love for you, okay? So you have the, the sense of the depth of your sin, and you got the sense of the greatness of God's love. And the bridge of this, of course, is the cross, right? The cross is the place where we see how sinful we are. We're so sinful that, that Christ had to die to save us. 
You know, there was no way to save ourselves. We were so sinful that we, we needed Christ to save us. And we're so loved by God that, that God was happy to offer a son. And the son was willing to come. And we saw the sense of God's greatness of his love and the sense of the depth of our sin. And then what happens over time is the Holy Spirit reveals to you more and more the depth of your sin, right? And if you look at like verse um, 19... He's got certain deeds that are pretty evident, you know, sexual morality and fits of anger and substance abuse and things like that, right? Those are real obvious here, right? But then as you grow in Christ, you get more, you see more of like what's in verse 20. So to realize like the enmity in your heart, there aren't just fits of anger, there's enmity in your heart. Or you start to see the lust in your heart, you start to see the, the jealousy and the envy. They're the things Jerry Bridges calls the um, respectable sins, They're the ones that can go undetected. And so the Holy Spirit reveals to us more and more the depth of our sin. You realize, oh man, there's, there's levels to my sin I had no idea existed. But what needs to happen too, guys, in healthy growth is we need the Holy Spirit to also increase our sense of his love, right? Sense of his love for us. And I think this is really important because some people can just focus on the sense of the depth of their sin and not see increasingly God's love for them personally, not his love for people in general or for Christians in general, but for you personally. That he, his, the sense of his love for you personally needs to go up. There's some older authors I love reading, and um, some of them are a bit wallowy as far as sin goes. You know, they'll, they'll turn over their sin, and they're great at helping you see the sin of the heart, you know, which we need, right? We need to see that. But some of them not so good at seeing God's love for them. And so you have a sense that they're kind of wallowing, both in in, in healthy growth, we need to have a deepening sense of our own sinfulness and, a, and an increased sense of God's love for us. And of course, the difference between that is what? Is the cross, right? On the cross, we see his love for us and the depth of our sin. And you see it's getting bigger, right? Cross is getting bigger. In true, healthy Christian growth, you're going to have increased amazement at God's grace over time. And the two ingredients for that is seeing God's love and seeing your sin. And you more and more see God's grace is huge. More and more as time goes on, we say, how would God save a person like me? Why would God have a person like me? And then, and then reflect on that and go, and he does. You know, and he does. And he's happy to. And he's, he's not only redeemed me from my sin, but he's welcomed me as, as his own son or daughter. And he delights in me. You know, Zephaniah talks about he sings over me with joy in his enjoyment of me. And it's just amazing, guys. And so if what's happening in your life is you're seeing more and more the depth of your sin, and you're seeing more and more the love of God, and your sense for the grace of God is getting more and more amazing with time, then the Holy Spirit's doing exactly what he came to do in your heart. It's exactly what he came to do. It's so cool. And it's exactly what Jesus said he would do. He said, I'm going to send another helper, and he's going to glorify me. Right? He's going to glorify me, and that's how he does it. And so if you're seeing that, and you're being reminded of your, that you're a son or a daughter, and you have increased amazement at God's grace, and you're being stirred for love for the Father, and you're having increased distaste for the deeds of the flesh, and increased fruit of the Spirit, not your fruit, the Spirit working through you, and it's creating good deeds for your neighbors, you know, that God is actually blessing your neighbors through your sanctification, then he's doing what he came to do. Isn't God good? Because a lot of times we think, like, have you ever been frustrated? It's a process. It's like justification, like salvation's like, bam, you know? Okay, you're right with God. You're done. Good. And then it's like, well, what about my change? Oh, that's going to take some time. And you're like, why? 
so painful for me and everybody around me, you know? This is like so dramatic. Like why? And I think what he wants to do is he wants to increase our dependency and our love for him. And it's better for it to be a process. He chose for it to be a process. And guys, he doesn't love a future version of you, by the way. It's not like, you know, you know he loves what you're going to be. He loves you now. He loves the process, believe it or not. He, he loves doing this with you. He loves deepening your understanding of what he's done in his grace. And so what are we going to do for the next few weeks? Surprise, okay? The surprise is this. Um, next week, we're going to do Ascension Sunday. How many of you guys have ever been to an Ascension Sunday service? Right, one right back there. Traditionally, the church calendar has been, you have Christmas, and then you have, you have Good Friday, Easter, Ascension Sunday, and Pentecost. And, and the reason is, so you have a full orb sense of what Jesus has done in salvation history. Because it's kind of funny, you have, you have Easter, and then we don't talk about it again until he's born again, you know? And so you're like, what happened? Where did he go? But he was around for 40 days after the resurrection, and then he ascended. And so Ascension Sunday is that, what, sixth week after Easter. Um, it's, the Ascension was actually, for, for you guys that are math people, 40 days after Easter, it does land on a Thursday, so you do the Sunday after, right? So next week's Ascension Sunday, we're going to look at the text about Christ's Ascension and figure out, like, where does this fit in? Because for a lot of people, it's like, I've never thought about the importance of the Ascension. So we're going to talk about the importance of the Ascension. And then the week after that, which corresponds to Easter plus 50 days, right? That's when Pentecost occurred. So it's all in the cycle. So you get a sense for, like, okay, this happened, then about a week later, this happened, right? Then we're going to look at what is Pentecost about, and this has everything to do with this. And then we'll come back into Galatians 5 and see how the Spirit works within us. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray for this very thing, Lord, that you would show us more and more the depth of our sin, not so we can wallow in it, not so that we can feel unaccepted in some way, but that so we can marvel at your love for us. Lord, make us a people that see our sin more than the sin of our neighbor's. And make us a people that see your personal love for us, for me, for us individually, personally. We see that love and that just explodes in our hearts. That we're amazed by your tremendous grace for us. God, you've been so good to us. So good to us to redeem us. So good to us that not just redeem us, but adopt us. And not just to have us be adopted kids that, that, that can't in any way, move on from our sin, but that you sent your spirit to live within us. It's just amazing how much you're preoccupied with us and interested in us sinners. And you love us. You've made us your kids, and we thank you for that. And as we come to the table, Lord, we pray that you would help us to feel that afresh again. Help this to truly feed our souls. Help this to be a time of deep remembrance. It was on a cross, on that hill, in the dark, that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that we will never have to? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.